Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. I'm Rob. Great to be with you. You did not know when you walked in this morning that you were walking into Easter in August. And I can tell by looking out there, there are not as many suits in the audience or hats in the audience as I would expect for Easter. But we did sort of surprise you with it. Now, if you've been tracking along through our text, you knew this was coming right? We've been studying Mark's gospel. Literally the last, I think it's been two or three months, we've been right near the end of Jesus' life. And it's, it's it's like time has slowed down in excruciating detail. And then we get to this morning and the text that Luke already read for us, the empty tomb. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I just want to toss this out there. The resurrection of Jesus either happened or it didn't. Okay, like historically, it's either real, it's either true, or it's not. And I know we've got a mix in the room, probably most of you, because this is a church. You would say, yeah, I I can buy that. I can believe that. That's part of my faith. The resurrection of Jesus actually happened. There's others of you, no doubt, and, 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 and it's fine. I'm glad you're here this morning, even if you're in this place, to say, actually, that's silly. Like, I don't believe that. Maybe Jesus was a good teacher. He was a moral leader and all these kinds of things. He started a religion, but the idea that he rose from the grave and is actually still alive, you know, in in heaven or whatever, that's just silly. So we got a mix of you in the room. Here's where I want to go with this is I want to say this. If the resurrection did happen, and if you're going to put your faith in it that it actually happened, it has profound implications for how you live your life. It's not just something you can claim to believe and then you just live like anybody else. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it marks you, it shapes you, it transforms you, it makes you live differently, think differently, act differently, speak differently. And I think we kind of miss this in our contemporary context. In fact, I would say with theology in general, we kind of tend to separate it from our everyday lives, right? Our, our theology is out here. Our life is over here. And some of you don't even like the word theology because it sounds boring or it sounds dusty or confusing. Some of you love theological concepts. But either way, most of us don't integrate our theology in our lives. Here's one of my passions in preaching. Okay, if you're interested to kind of know what do I gravitate toward in preaching, it's taking what Scripture teaches us is true about God, ourselves, and the world around us, which, by the way, that's all theology is, right? What's true about God, the, uh, ourselves, and the world around us, and laying it over top of real life. Like, how does our theology matter? How does it intersect our everyday lives, our ordinary going to school, going to work, you know, relating with one another, eating meals together, doing service with one another. How does our theology play into life experience? That's what I love to talk about. That's what I love to preach about through God's word. That's exactly what we're going to do today. And we're going to shape that around the doctrine of the resurrection, which is the most important doctrine in our faith. And so for those of you that aren't there, you don't believe it, I just want you to just listen this morning. And I want you even, would you dare to let your imagination think, well, what if it was true? I know it's not, you know. But what if it was true? What would that mean? And for those of you that do believe it, I want you to ask this question. Since I do believe it's true, how is it forming me? How is it shaping me? Not just the fact that I'll be in heaven someday. What does it mean for me right now? That's where we're going. We're going to use this text, Mark 16, 1 through 8. Luke's already read it. Specifically, for those of you that like an outline or note takers out there, I'm going to tell you where we're going. This text is going to show how believing in the resurrection can and should challenge your mind, soften your heart, 
and engage your whole life. That's where we're going. The resurrection will challenge your mind, soften your heart, engage your whole life. Now, I got to say one quick note about the text. As you look at verse 16, and if you haven't opened your Bible, I'd encourage you to already, chapter 16 of Mark, you'll see the whole chapter is 20 verses long. We're only going to study the first eight verses, and I want to tell you why. If you look in your text at verse 9, you probably have a note. Like there's a little number, like a number one, and then if you trace that to the reference, it'll say something like this. In fact, you know, mine says this. Later manuscripts added verses 9 through 20. So from the best research that we can do and from the textual criticism that we've done that honestly gives us a lot of confidence in the integrity of Scripture, this, this discipline of textual criticism, it is almost certain that decades after Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, later scribes came and added 9 through 20 because they wanted to add a postscript of what happened after the story ended right? It's, you know, it's a little bit like the sequel to the movie, you know, and if you know anything about sequels, they're usually not as good as the original, right? And so the original gospel of Mark ended at verse 8. Later on, scribes came and they added 9 through 20. Now, why does Mark's gospel end so abruptly? We're going to talk about that. At the end of the message, we're going to come back to that theme. All right. That note aside, the first thing we'll see in this text is the resurrection of Jesus should challenge your mind. It should challenge your mind. So let me pick it up in verse 1. Remember, contextually, Jesus is in the tomb. That's where we left him last week. Lloyd was here teaching through that message. He's in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And the last note in chapter 15 is there are these women that watched to see where he was buried. And now our text is going to be about these women picking it up in verse 1 of 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Now pause there. Here's some um, cultural context. Sabbath from a Jewish perspective is sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Jesus was buried right around sundown on Friday, late afternoon on Friday is when he died. And now he's been in the tomb at this point, 24 hours, Sabbath is over. Why is that important? Because the shops open back up. Shops are closed during the Sabbath time right? So the shops open back up sundown on Saturday for a very short period of time to allow people to buy essentials before uh, they, they, they turn in for the night. So these three women, they go and they buy the spices. Now, they're not going to anoint Jesus now because it's dark and they could never venture outside of the city safely, which is where Jesus was buried, outside of the city. So they're going to buy the spices, they're going to wait till early in the morning, and then they're going to anoint him. Another detail I don't want you to miss that we've already uh, discovered here is we know the specific names of these women. Like it wasn't just you know, a group of women, it was these three women. Mark hardly ever mentions people's names. So as you're studying the Bible and you see something that's different than the normal pattern, you should pay attention to it. Why does Mark go out of his way to mention these women's names? They were eyewitnesses. More than likely, they were still alive when this text was written. And he's saying, these three, you know, you can go ask them. You can go talk to them. Hear their names, right? Eyewitness testimony was the most important evidence in the cultural context. They didn't have DNA testing. They didn't have fingerprints. They didn't have any of that. So in a court of law, eyewitness testimony was what mattered the most. Now, the early church had a problem because the court of law could not take the eyewitness testimony of women. 
I'm sorry, ladies. You know, that was wrong. It was, it was terribly wrong. But according to the cultural laws of the day, Jewish cultural laws and Roman law, women, female testimony was not admissible. Isn't it interesting that God chose women to be the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb? I think it's beautiful. I think it's redemptive. But beyond that, it gives us a lot of confidence that this is true. Because if the disciples had made it up, they never would have put women as the eyewitnesses because their testimony can't be trusted according to the culture. So it's just one other little detail among many that gives us confidence. In fact, you'll see a lot of details in this text. It reads like an eyewitness account, not a fabled story that was made up later. Let's keep going, verses 2 and 3. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Remember, they'd seen him buried. They watched probably a big contingent of soldiers it would have taken to roll this very heavy uh, stone across the entrance. They're on their way and they're like, I hope either those soldiers are still there or maybe we can find a group of gardeners or some men passing through to help us roll this stone away. Here's why that's important. It reminds us that they were not expecting what they were about to see. Even though Jesus predicted his resurrection, they were not expecting it. His disciples were not expecting it. They're off in hiding. These women are not expecting it. What they're expecting is a dead body. They brought the spices to anoint the dead body. They're expecting it to be completely sealed. They're in for the surprise of their lives. Let's look at that in verse 4 and 5. Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Expecting to find a dead body, they find someone that's very much not dead. In fact, he's not a normal human. There's a little clue to that in the text. You see where it says, wearing a white robe robe. That word white is not the typical standard white of, you know, something white that you would wear. It has this idea of effervescence, of dazzling. It's bright white. It's how angels are typically described. And angels are messengers. And this is indeed an angel with a message. Now, I want to drill down on one word in verse 5. It's the word amazed. This is their intellectual and emotional response to seeing something they weren't expecting. They're amazed. And again, remember, they're not expecting resurrection. It's the last thing on their minds because it can't happen. It's impossible. So their response to seeing the angel where there should be a man, dead man, is amazement. Now, I did some study on this word. Now, this is worth following along, okay? Um, we, some, sometimes we, we pick a Greek word in the text, you know, not just to show, hey, we like Greek words, but to show words matter in the text. And so in your translation, the word is translated amazed. It might be translated alarmed. It's a unique Greek word that only Mark uses in the whole New Testament. You know, we find it in other extra biblical sources, but in our Bible, it's only in Mark. And here's what it means. It means to be moved to an intense emotional state because of something causing great surprise. So have you ever been shocked 
by something. And you, you start crying or, or, or you just start, right? Or, or you're just stunned and you can't make sense of the world. Why does that happen? It's because you encounter something that your brain can't calculate. Like, you know, if, if you just, you're driving down the highway and you see like a, a purple unicorn run across the road, it's just not something you can see, right? That can't happen. It's like, no, that's, that's got to be something, somebody dressed up or that's got to be, maybe a guacamole from last night is getting to me. There's just something that's not right going on and you are amazed, okay? Uh, I'll give you a personal example. Um, one of the most important moments of my life was ruined by someone being in this emotional state, it was the moment I asked my wife to marry me. <laughs> so let me tell you just the story kind of briefly. We've been dating three years, and I knew like if I did the typical fancy restaurant white tablecloth, she'd know the proposal was coming a mile away, and I wanted to surprise her. So I told her I was out of town, and that, that was usual for me. I was working a job that I was traveling a lot in Raleigh, North Carolina. was one of my territories. I was traveling there a lot. Had a good buddy, a good friend in Raleigh that I went to high school with. And I, told, I called Jody on the phone. I said, hey, I'm up in Raleigh. Plane just landed a little while ago. I've got a little time before my first meeting. And, and Jeff and I are on the golf course. Okay, I was not in Raleigh, right? I, little did she know, I was like, you know, 15 minutes from her apartment. And I said, before I left, I, I wrote a letter to you, you know, very romantic gesture. And I put it, I taped it underneath the bench where we had our first date. You remember that spot in the, you know, the Athens Botanical Gardens? Of course, how could I forget? Yeah, yeah. How sweet of you to write a letter. All right, well, you better go get the letter now because I heard it's supposed to rain later today. You know, just like making stuff up. Because I wanted her to come to the park because I was at the park. In fact, I was hiding behind a bush about 20 <laughs> feet. <laughs> now, I thought, okay, she might think this is weird and fishy, so I'm going to go the extra mile to make sure she really believes I'm in Raleigh. So what I did was, I, my friend Jeff, who really does live in Raleigh, I had him on a three-way call during this phone call, and he wasn't saying anything, like, so she didn't know he was on the call. Does this make sense? And then at one point I said, hey, Jody, I got to go hit this shot, so I'm going to hand the phone to Jeff. And then Jeff starts talking, you know, like he took my phone. And <laughs> so like this is like, like guys that are not married yet, like start writing notes down. Okay, this, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. However, it all went wrong because I'll tell you why it went wrong. I did too good a job of tricking her because I was hiding behind this bush, right? She comes in, she sits at the bench, she finds the letter, she's reading it. I'm, you know, I'm pouring out my heart in this letter. But the proposal's not in the letter, right? The proposal has to happen eyeball to eyeball on my knee, right? So I try to time it when she's at toward the end of the letter, and I creep out of the bushes. <laughs> and she is amazed. <laughs> I'm walking toward her, and she's looking at me, and she's looking at me again. She's blinking her eyes, and she looks like a ghost, now, I did not have the presence of mind at this time to let her settle down before I proposed. I, I was in the moment. So I just went right down on my knee and I said, Jody, I love you. Will you marry me? And she said, but you're in Raleigh. <laughs> <laughs> and I ruined the moment, you know? And, and, and like, it took her, it took us like 20 minutes later. She was finally, but, 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 but Jeff, I talked to Jeff, you know, how is this possible? <laughs> And she later told me, she said, Rob, it's so sweet all the trouble you went to, but I couldn't enjoy it. I couldn't enjoy it because I was so shocked. Okay, so this is the emotional response of these women. 
They're perplexed. They're amazed. Why are they amazed? They're not expecting resurrection. Here's the point for you and me, guys. This is not a normal thing. This is not easy just to believe. This is not something that you should just say, well, you know, my mom and dad told me in the fourth grade that Jesus rose from the dead and, you know, we used to get dressed up for Easter, so I guess it's true. No, you got to challenge your mind a little bit more than that. You got to dig into it. You don't need to be afraid of that either. Like there's a lot of great evidence that there's an empty tomb. There's no body. The Christian movement exploded because they all truly actually believed Jesus physically rose from the dead. Not in some kind of moral way of, well, it's just a lesson, you know, that, you know, you know nothing can hold you down. You know, it's, that's not what this is. This is a bodily resurrection. These women are shocked. These women are surprised. And then they're going to hear the explanation for why Jesus isn't here in verse 6. The angel, he said to them, do not be amazed. Okay, you know, this is like me trying to explain to my wife, like, why, why I'm actually here. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. Do you see how matter-of-fact this is? Like, he's not trying to make up some, like, spiritual explanation of, like, well, you know, he's just kind of like, now he's just a, a spiritual mist, and, you know, you can't see him anymore, but trust me, he's here. No, he's saying, physically, he has risen up, he was right here laying on this piece of stone, and he's no longer here. He's gone. And so the most amazing explanation turns out to be the true explanation according to this angel. Now, the, the women are going to have to make up their minds on this, and they're going to have to figure out what they just heard and saw, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But with, think about this for a minute with me. Without the angel's explanation, their mind does not go to resurrection because that's not how the world works. Their mind goes to, is this the right tomb? Maybe we saw it wrong last night. You know, if the angel wasn't there, or their mind goes to, maybe somebody took the body, by, by the way, these are all, you know, um, uh, scholarly, you know, secular scholar explanations, you know, why the tomb was empty. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Yeah, it, that doesn't make any sense, right? They, somebody would figure out, oh, well, that was the wrong tomb. Let's go to the real tomb. Here's the body, you know. Or maybe the authorities took the body and were hiding it so the disciples couldn't claim a resurrection. Well, why didn't they pull it out later and say, look, here's the body? Or may, maybe the disciples stole the body and got rid of it somewhere and claimed that he was risen again. Listen, Hundreds of people saw Jesus face to face. We get some of their names. Paul in 1 Corinthians is going to say, most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Go ask them. They saw. We don't have one eyewitness testimony. You got dozens, maybe hundreds of eyewitness testimonies when the gospels and the epistles were written. And there's a lot more we could say about evidence for the resurrection. That's not where we can really spend our time this morning. But if you're curious, I'd encourage you to read about it. Now, the most incredible explanation is true. If it is, and I know some of you believe, some of you don't, that's okay. If it is true, though, it should boggle your mind. It should challenge your mind because it changes everything. And this is where I want to sit for a few more minutes. The resurrection of Jesus should challenge our minds. I'm talking to believers now. It should like challenge, engage your mind because here's what it means. Assuming it's true, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting that it is, I believe it is firmly from doing lots of research, but also the own, the, my, my faith. We're putting our faith in this as Christians, right? If the resurrection is true, it opens up all kinds of possibilities. 
Let me give you some examples. It means that the laws of aging and entropy are not as ironclad as we thought they were, right? But are, in fact, subject to a higher authority. So it means that at least in this one case, at least, God has the power and authority to say, nope, you're not staying dead. You're going to have life, okay? Everything we know on this earth is entropy, right? It, things don't get better, they don't get worse. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, it opens up the possibility that there is a higher authority than the physical laws that we are experiencing here on this earth right now. Number two, it means that death itself may not be what we thought. Without resurrection, death's the dead end, right? It's it. So you better live all you can now because once that comes, it's done. If resurrection is true, it opens up the idea that maybe the end of life is not actually the end of life. That there's at least a possibility that it could be only the beginning. That there could be something more, something after. All right? Here's something else to think about. The bodily resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that physical existence matters. That material things matter, not just spiritual things. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus did not leave his physical body on earth and just become some kind of ethereal mist presence. No, physical bodily resurrection matters. It means that there is an expectation we can have that eternal life is going to be tangible. Like, it's going to be real. We're going to have bodies, recreated bodies. We're going to be a beautiful new earth that we're going to populate. And there's going to be delicious food. And there's going to be waterfalls and trees. And, you know, Scripture's talking about these things at the end of Revelation. We're going to enjoy a tangible existence, men and women. We're not some spiritual beings floating around on clouds. Because bodily resurrection is what Jesus experienced. And it is what we will experience. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. The resurrection proves God loves this world. Every other religion conceives of salvation as an escape from the material world. Your soul goes off to heaven or you go off into another realm of consciousness or something like that. The resurrection proves that God doesn't just want to save souls but bodies. He doesn't want to just save the spiritual but the physical. Now, why does that matter in your theology? And I know for many of us that's different than how we were kind of raised to think about heaven. Why does this matter in your theology. When you think hard about it, it actually changes your perspective on all kinds of things. So here are some examples. We all struggle on this earth to be content, right? Like we always want a little more, a little more this, a little more that, a little better relationships, a little less pain, a little less suffering. It's hard to be content on this earth. Why do we struggle to be content? Because we tend to think this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. So if we're not getting as much as we can get, comfort, pleasures, joys, success, achievement, then I guess we missed out. There's always something more that we're not having, therefore we're discontent. Why do we have so much fear about our physical health? I could get sick tomorrow, get a call from the doctor, I could, you know, my wife could have cancer. I mean, these things are real. Why is there so much fear associated with that? Because we think these bodies are the only bodies that we're ever going to have. All right? Why is it hard for us to resist the pull of materialism and greed? Because we think the wealth on this earth is the only wealth that there is. Why do we spend our lives grasping for all kinds of things that we think will fill us? Because we think comfort, success, pleasures here and now are the end game. 
And why wouldn't we? Because that's all that we can see with these eyes. Right? Paul says, listen, if resurrection is not true, then eat and drink and be merry because this is it. This is it. Now, you start seeing how, you know, you, you say you believe in resurrection, but what you really believe in is, boy, this earth is all that there is, and I better get what I can, and if I don't have what I wish I had, I feel a sense of weight. Do you realize, like, we're, we're in the caterpillar stage, guys. We're not butterflies yet. You know, it's like the caterpillar is just so worrying about, oh, man, what if I never, ever get to see the top of this tree I'm climbing up? He's going to see the whole forest once he makes that transformation. Do you see, if he understands that, it makes him more content with the little leaf that he's on at the moment, okay? Maybe silly analogy. I hope you're identifying with it at some point in time. The doctrine of the resurrection removes, I think this is the big idea, it removes our scarcity mindset that we tend to have on this earth. There's there's a finite amount of, of resources. There's a finite amount of joy, of hope. Relationships are broken. There's suffering, right? It, it just relieves the tension around all that and says, no, this is not all there is. If Jesus rose from the grave, there's hope that there's something more than what we're physically experiencing right now on this earth. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 8, 18. I don't think any of us could say it any better than this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. As I just, just wait. What comes next is grander. It's more beautiful and glorious and joyful and it's gonna last a whole lot longer. Now, if you really think about this, it will change the way you think about everything. Your money, your time, your wealth, your relationships. Your friendships, your careers, your goals, your hopes, your dreams, the way you deal with suffering, your attitude toward disappointment, it'll change all of that. But you gotta engage your mind on it. The resurrection of Jesus should challenge your mind. It should be theology that has a punch in the way that you actually live out your life. Now, that's number one. I better pick up the pace just a little bit here. Number one, the resurrection will challenge your mind. Number two, the resurrection will soften your heart. How does that happen? Look at verse seven. The angel says this, go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Doesn't that soften your heart? (laughs) No, but it should. It should, let me tell you why. One of the reasons, uh, I guess another one of the reasons I love the way that we preach how we preach here is we've been in the gospel of Mark now for an entire year, so you know something about the disciples, all right? What do you know about the disciples? Were they like awesome paragons of of discipleship wonder? Were they like superhero disciples? They were utter failures, right? I mean, think back to some of the stories that we actually talked about here. There's this one time when they just watched Jesus multiply bread, and right after that, they're in a boat, and they're like, we forgot to bring bread. What are we going to do? Like, are we going to eat? You know, there's this other time, you know, that like their, their faith was strong one moment. You know, Peter, Peter's like, you're the Christ. And then Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. You know, and, and, and Jesus says, you'll get behind me, Satan. Right? And there, there, there were other times when, you know, uh, over and over and over again, they didn't even understand the sermon. And, and they're the guys in the front row, right? How about this one? 
One of the 12 betrayed him. One of the 12 denied him. And the rest of them all abandoned him. Okay, these disciples were failures. So this message that we just read in verse 7, tell those disciples, I want to see them again. I'm not done with them yet. I haven't rejected them. I haven't put them aside. I'm not angry. I'm not cutting them off for abandoning me in the most important time of my life. Jesus is saying this, a message through the angel. It's going to bring hope. It's going to bring grace. Now, did you notice going out of his way to say, and Peter, the, the, the biggest living failure of the disciples is Peter. Uh, if you were here, I don't know, it's been four, five, six weeks when we talked about Peter's failure, and it was one of the messages that I was here teaching, and I went out of my way to make a point because I knew we'd come back to it in this text, and the point was this. Most likely, when Peter denied Jesus, he also cursed Jesus. And remember, there's a lot of cursing going on in that text, and, and the, the cursing wasn't, you know, four-letter words. The cursing was, I don't know that man, curse him. In other words, I'm going to show you I'm not his follower. A follower would never curse his master. I'm going to curse Jesus. See, that's what's going on. If there's any way to turn in your discipleship badge, that's how you do it. Curse your master. Jesus had turned in his badge. Now, fast forward. He's sitting around and hiding with these other 10 disciples that are still alive. There's 11 of them left. The women come in. If they just would have said, Jesus wants to meet his disciples in Galilee, Peter would have said, all right, guys, well, you go. You go. I'm out. I turned in my badge. I cursed the master. I, after what I've done, I'm not a disciple anymore. The message is tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus is setting Peter up for restoration. The resurrection makes grace possible. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, Peter's failure would have defined his life. You see this? His whole identity as a disciple he betrayed. He's now going to get restored. The resurrection should soften your heart because it means God is not finished with you. He's not finished with me. I don't care what you did this week. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you did five, ten years ago that you think is so black and big that God can't ever really delight in you again. You're wrong. You're wrong. If Christ came back from the dead, gave Peter an opportunity for forgiveness and restoration, you have an opportunity for grace. This is what I'd say to all of you that don't believe in the resurrection this morning. There is an invitation on the table for you to be okay with God, for you to be restored, for you to have new life. And yes, it is putting your faith in something that may be hard for you to believe in, but if you long long for relationship with God, the offers on the table, not according to my words, according to the testimony of the scripture. And I could point you to hundreds of scriptures that would invite you into new life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's as simple as I can say it. Faith in Christ, restoration with your master. Now, the resurrection of Jesus should challenge our minds. Right? It should make us think differently about life. It should soften our hearts because we recognize we're all sinners. We recognize we're all Peters. We've all failed in various ways. We've all cursed God in various ways. And it invites us into new life. And that should soften you right here. You should have this sense of, I'm not worthy. What if Peter's heart had stayed hard? 
Like, what if the angel had come back and said, he said, the disciples and you. And Peter said, no, I don't think so. I, I, not after what I've done. No, 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 Peter, he, he used your name. You're not your old name even, your new name, Rock. He said, Rock, I heard him. And Peter said, well, I'm okay. I, I'm okay to go back to fishing. I, 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 I've, I've gone too far. It's, it's enough for me to just think that maybe Jesus would think of me. I'm not gonna try to be his disciple again. I couldn't. If Peter's heart had stayed hard, if he hadn't recognized his need for restoration, some of you, believers and unbelievers alike, you don't actually recognize at the, the, the heart level that you need to be restored relationally. You're just kind of cruising on through life and you know, you're okay and I hope God's okay. It's kind of the mentality. No, no, no. You gotta be restored. You gotta come back into fellowship with the God who made you, with the master that you serve. The invitation is on the table. The resurrection means you're not done. There's hope. It should soften your heart. All right, last one. Not only should it challenge your mind, not only should it soften your heart, it should engage your whole life. It should become the defining thing that you live around, that you base your life around. I know that sounds like just religious speak, but I want to tease this out. Let's look at what happens to these women. Verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. You know, I mean, you don't blame them, right? And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, the angel just said, go tell. And at least at this point, and our story ends at this point, they haven't told. They haven't told yet. Isn't it interesting that Mark ends the gospel right here? You know, it, it, I think one reason he did it, by the way, is because his audience that he wrote this for, they were living out the ending. Now, they knew exactly what happened. They knew these women. They knew what had happened. They knew that the Christian movement had exploded. They knew about the literal appearances of Jesus. They'd, they'd been living it. But Mark leaves the story right here. Are they going to talk or are they not going to talk? And I've been thinking about this, and I said, you know what? To encounter something that is really hard to believe, there's something that you heard or saw that just can't be true. Puts you in a dilemma. Over time, either you're going to dismiss that. Well, I guess I must not have been right. That must not have happened. It couldn't have happened. Or it'll come to define your life. Because you're going to say, no, that happened. And yes, it was impossible, which means other impossible things are possible. That happened. Okay, which way did these women go? You know, did they dismiss it or did it come to define their lives? Well, what we know historically speaking is these women became part of the first church. The first church changed the world and gave their lives away for the message that they proclaimed. Okay, these women, I'd say about 90, 95% likelihood were martyred for their faith. They died along with all the other disciples. Every one of those people went to a gruesome death because they would not recant what they knew to be true. It defined their lives. 
And so the Christian movement, because it was based on the eyewitness testimony of not three women, but multiple people, hundreds of people who saw the risen Christ, it exploded where all other messianic movements died with the death of their leader. So for those of you that don't believe in the resurrection, you at least have to intellectually explain a cause or a reason why Christianity exploded within the very years that those who had seen the risen Christ were alive. The very years that the Roman authorities who killed him were still alive. They couldn't produce a body. They they couldn't shut it down. And the people that saw Jesus were so convinced that it was actually a, a, a live, resurrected Jesus that they would give their lives away by the thousands because what they saw was true. Now, how should this engage our whole lives? Very similarly, very similarly, uh, let me put it this way. Our tagline on this whole series on Mark, you know, the title is, is following the servant king, and then the, the byline underneath is how Jesus' life redefines your own. There is no bigger way Jesus' life should redefine your own than in the resurrection. It should challenge your mind. It should soften your heart. It should engage your entire life. It should do all of these things we've talked about. It should have a profound impact on what you value, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, on what you share with other people, what you choose to think about, act on, say, and build on this earth. It should define your life. Like, it shouldn't be like, okay, I'm, I'm an attorney, and I'm a dad, and, and I'm a brother, and I'm a golfer, and I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. Like, I believe in life on the other side. I believe in resurrection, a material world that matters. I'm going to be about celebrating that now. I'm going to be about the work that my master Jesus would call me to because the life that's really going to matter is still to come. So I, I, here's what I, I, I want to just ask you is, do you believe that resurrection is true? If you do, if you do, you can't stay the same. Now, who would want to? You have an opportunity for your theology to play a profound role in choices that you make on this earth. Now, here's how I'm going to lead us as we start to bring this Easter service to a close. I want to ask the band to come out. And we are going to sing a song together at the end. And it's going to be an Easter song, right? I mean, we like pulling out all the Easter stops this morning. But before we get there, I actually want to engage you all, all right, Particip- in a participatory way. And don't worry, this is not going to be like a, um, every head bowed, every eye closed, raise your hand. You know, it's not, 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 we're not going there this morning. I'm going to call on you all as a congregation to proclaim what you believe is true. So here's how it's going to work. I've, I've got five or six little paragraphs that I've written that are implications of the resurrection. If this really happened, here's what it means. And then after each one, I'm gonna invite you to say these three simple words. He has risen. And by proclaiming that, and if you don't believe it, you don't need to proclaim it. By proclaiming that, you're saying, because he has risen, all this other stuff could be true for me. I'm gonna dare to hope. I'm going to dare to live differently 
because I'm taking my theology and placing it over my real life. Okay. So go ahead and stand up if you will. When it is your time to speak, you only need to remember three words. He has risen. That's all you'll need to say. Now, you won't even need to remember them because we're putting them on the screen. And trust me, you won't be able to miss these words on the screen. So here we go. Number one, in this world, we grieve. We feel loss. We endure pain. But because Jesus was raised, we believe that every tear we have now will be dried then. And we believe Jesus will make all things new. We believe this, church, because he has risen. In this world, we're lonely. It's a part of our existence. So we numb our pain often in unhealthy ways that wound other people. But because Jesus was raised, there is a day when all of our relational needs will be fully and eternally satisfied. We can wait for that day because he has risen. In this world, we are anxious. We worry about food and jobs, our health, our friendships, our marriages, our appearances, our children, our finances, our careers, our futures. But because Jesus was raised, every piece of our future is secure. We can rest in this because he is risen. In this world, our identities are pinned to things like wealth, status, talent, intellect, appearance, education, achievement, but because Jesus was raised, our true selves are securely rooted in Christ. So we feel neither pride nor shame in this new identity because we did not earn it and we cannot lose it. We have this confidence because he has risen. And finally, in this world, Death is the cruel destiny that spares no one. Death is a dark shadow that threatens us and mocks us. But because Jesus was raised, we know death is actually a doorway into real life. And there will come a day that we will say to death, where is your victory? We will say to death, where is your sting? It will be gone. We know this because he has risen. Amen.